You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. We gotta live on science Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Unbiased Science, where we bring scientific method to the madness. We're your hosts, Dr. Jessica Steyer and Dr. Andrea Love. And this week, we were going to tackle the science of love, but instead, we're doing a little pandemic rewind and sharing an interview that we did with Dr. Tom Frieden. Um, For those who are not familiar, Dr. Frieden is a physician. He's the former director of the CDC, former health commissioner for New York City, and currently serves as the president and CEO of Resolve to Save Lives, which is a public health organization focused on tackling cardiovascular and prevention of epidemics. So this conversation actually took place back in August of 2021, when Delta was the dominant strain. Obviously, a lot has changed since then, but we did tackle several topics that are still very relevant to today. Um, We were really excited to have this uh, opportunity to speak with Dr. Frieden, and so we thought you might enjoy listening to it. We also wanted to recap last week's episode where we tackled a very hot topic, leaky gut syndrome. This topic was actually selected by our amazing patrons, so thank you for the suggestion. And leaky gut is rife with misconceptions. So we actually brought on an amazing guest host, Dr. Jessie Hoffman. She's a registered dietitian and a researcher and expert in human nutrition to tackle this this topic. So we kick things off with a discussion of the term leaky gut syndrome, what it's used to describe, and how it gained popularity. We talked about how we digest food and the physiology of our gut. We discuss what the term leaky gut means in science versus what it means in pop medicine or pop culture and how it's supposedly diagnosed. We also talk about treatments, many of which are unfortunately bogus and potentially dangerous. And we also chat about how leaky gut is often used as a scapegoat for other illnesses and the dangers of misdiagnosis. So if you didn't catch that episode, definitely go back and check it out. 
out. Without further ado, um, here is our interview with Dr. Tom Frieden. Um, as just mentioned, it this was during the Delta surge, um, but we did address a lot of relevant topics such as vaccine hesitancy, navigating the pandemic with young children, vaccine mandates and lockdowns, um, the role of testing and controlling COVID-19, and our general approach to emergency preparedness. So um, we, we hope you enjoy it. And here goes nothing. Thank you so much, Dr. Tom Frieden, for taking the time to chat with us today. Um, for those who are listening, if you're not familiar with Dr. Frieden, uh, Dr. Frieden is the former director of the U.S. Centers for Disease Control. Um, he's also the former health commissioner of New York City. He's now the uh, president and CEO of Resolve to Save Lives. Um, in addition to that, and obviously has a very long list of accomplishments on his CV, um, he's also a medical doctor with expertise in internal medicine, epidemiology, and infectious disease. Um, and he has been very busy throughout <laughs> the pandemic. So um, thank you so much, Dr. Frieden, for taking some time to chat with us today. My pleasure. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Okay, so let's just dive in. The question that everyone wants to know is, how has Delta changed the course of the pandemic? How does it change the equation for us? Right, so in the, there are really two broad areas there. First, Delta is more than double as infectious, and so that means we have to double down on protection. That means we need to have multiple layers. We need to ramp up vaccination. We need to mask up at certain times. But more broadly, Delta tells us that uh, this virus isn't done with us yet. When new organisms jump the animal-human interface, and however the COVID virus emerged, ultimately it comes from animals and is just now getting used to humans. Um, when that happens, the organism often adapts fairly quickly as it learns our weaknesses. And if we don't adapt as it adapts, we'll be playing catch up and having avoidable death and economic dislocation. So, of course, everyone wants to know, now we have Delta. Are there going to be, do we think that there'll be future mutations that are possibly even more transmissible, more deadly than Delta? It's certainly possible. And that's why we need to continue to track to see if there are more transmissible, more deadly, more vaccine escaping mutants coming out. And the more uncontrolled spread there is, the higher the risk that that may happen. Something that um, I like to say in, in, in the research world is this is the evolutionary arms race. Who's going to outwit who first, right? Is it going to be the virus or is it going to be humans and all of these mitigation measures that we implement? Josh Letterberg, who won the Nobel Prize for work in biology, used to say that um, microbes outnumber us billions to one. Yeah. It's their numbers against our intelligence. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and when That's it comes to the fighting this pandemic, there are science-based ways to do it, and there are ways that ignore the science. Mm -hmm. And with this pandemic, with COVID, you ignore the science. You un underestimate this virus at your own peril because it's shown us again and again that uh, it can be quite deadly. 
So early on in the pandemic, when we were talking about herd immunity, even before the vaccines came about, early estimates um, were around, what, 60 to 70 percent and have since increased to, I've seen about 80 percent, some even higher, 90 percent. What do you think? What do you think the future holds? Are we going to live with COVID forever? Is it going to become endemic? Well, first off, um, you have to say that there's a lot of misunderstanding about what herd immunity is. Herd immunity is not disease eradication or elimination. Herd immunity really means the level at which you're not going to get explosive spread. And herd immunity is going to be community specific. Uh, Here where I live in New York City, there are communities that have 95%, 90 plus percent vaccination rates and other communities that are well under 50%. So uh, in any community, you're going to have pockets which are vulnerable, susceptible to explosive spread. That said, the level of herd immunity is just a calculation. And the higher the R0, the higher the herd immunity threshold. I would think that with something as infectious as Delta, we're going to need 90% plus. Mm -hmm. Now, if our immunity from infection is also protective, then that helps you some, because some of the people who are not vaccinated may be immune from having been infected. But just as there are uh, mutants that may evade vaccine-induced immunity, there are certainly variants that evade our so-called natural immunity from prior infection. So you bring up a really important point, and we often hear, you know, oh, I already had COVID, so I'm protected now. I don't need the vaccine. What would you say to those folks who have already had COVID and have recovered? Get the vaccine. You don't want to be regretting it when you're in the hospital or in the ICU or when you get a reinfection and you give it to your your mother or grandmother or your brother-in-law and they die from it. Mm -hmm. Uh, The vaccines are astonishingly effective and they're very safe. And A prior infection, you don't know what the dose was. You don't know which strain you got. You don't know how protective your immunity is going to be. Uh, With uh, the vaccine, they've gone through clinical trials. They've been given to hundreds of millions of people. They're safe and effective. Mm -hmm. So what do you, um, do you think that we will need a, a booster shot, a third dose of the vaccine? I know we don't have a crystal ball, but what are your thoughts on that? The first thing to figure out is who's getting severe breakthrough infections. And it may be that certain people need a third dose. That's not a booster. That's a different vaccine schedule. And that's not just a wording difference. That's a real difference. So it may be that someone over the age of 80 or someone who has uh, on, who is on certain medicines for immune suppression because of transplant should get a third dose and may benefit from it. Uh, the separate question is, Will our immunity wane over the next 6, 12 months? And will vaccine escape strains emerge? And if either of those things happen, then yes, we're going to need a booster dose. But right now, there is, and I I said this a while ago, the companies don't agree with it, but I'm going to stand by what I said. Right now, there is zero, and I mean zero, evidence that we will need booster doses. That's Mm -hmm. not the same as whether some people need to get a third dose to get fully immune in the first place. I do know that the companies are showing data that says that antibody levels go down over time and antibody levels do correlate with protection to an extent. So we're seeing 
some hints that it would be the case. But until we see actual breakthroughs that increase with time and cause severe illness, I think it's premature to be thinking about booster doses. I think, I mean, Dr. Frieden, you bring up a great point there. And I, and I, and I like the way that you phrase that it is a different vaccine schedule. It's very much like the different dosage of the flu vaccine for elderly persons and things like that. Um, and I find it interesting that, you know, we're very fixated in the U S on these third doses or these boosters where around the world, there are countries that still haven't received any vaccines yet. So I feel like, you know, you are emphasizing a really important point, both for the data that just, you know, they're not there yet, right? There's no data to suggest that we really need that, but also we have to focus on vaccine equity at the same time. Yes. Um, the reality is that countries are going to make decisions based on uh, what people who are in charge uh, decide. Those people will make decisions based on what their voters want. And so uh, I don't think any country in the world is going to do the kind of vaccine sharing that would be ethical, except Norway. Norway has done it. Um, but uh, really the solution here is to ramp up mRNA manufacturing, because if we don't do that, we're just going to be playing catch up. We're billions of doses behind, billions. And so we need a new way of ramping up production. And, and we think that the way to do that is with a hub environment. So you're not relying on one company. You're getting multiple companies in an industrial park-like environment to address all of the different production delay and failure problems. The mRNA vaccines are very appealing. They're highly effective, they're safe, and they're quicker to scale up manufacturing of. And essentially they take what is a, a fairly um, uh, uncertain biological process with most of the other vaccines, and they turn it into a more predictable chemical process. So with this new surge in Delta, we are seeing a bit of an increase in vaccine enthusiasm, which had plateaued, right? Um, that's encouraging, but we still have many holdouts and people who are hesitant to get the vaccine. So uh, Andrea is an, an immunologist. I'm a public health scientist with unbiased science. Our whole goal is to try to debunk so much of the misinformation that's swirling. Of course, we know you're of course, incredible um, with public health messaging. What do you think, what are some of the most important messages that we need to get out now to the general public to try to combat some of that hesitation? Well, I think actually it starts with listening. What are people's concerns? Uh, and it's different for different populations. And then what are the messages and the messengers who are going to mo be most effective with different populations? Some of the things that are likely to help are, as people see that people are getting sick and dying, yes, you're going to see an increase in vaccination rates. As young people learn that they're not immune from long COVID and may be suffering for many months from this, uh, there's more that they need to do to get vaccinated. We also need to continue to address the barriers, whether that's needing to take time off work or uh, travel or go to a facility that you don't really feel good about. So th there are still real barriers to getting vaccinated, but we need to do much more because the quicker we vaccinate, the more people we vaccinate, the better off we'll be. 
So one of the things that we run up against is this just general mistrust of government entities, of pharmaceutical companies. We all just kind of get lumped in there of the CDC, of the FDA. Any any pointers on how to talk to those people? It seems like the conversation is over before it even starts with those folks. Yeah, it's a tough one. And it's a legacy really of the past year and a half that trust in a lot of government institutions is lower in some groups. If you look at polling, it's not as bad as you might think. Uh, but one of the things that we have to do is rely on the local uh, experts, local public health officers. Now, they're, they're almost an endangered species now. Uh, they speak up for the science and they get attacked in some communities. But we, we need to do much better in terms of listening to what people are saying. Uh, I've had interesting conversations with vaccine hesitant folks who say people don't respect us. They think we're stupid. And we're not stupid. We have questions, important questions that need to be addressed. Every community deserves to be listened to. Their concerns need to be acknowledged. Their uh, worries need to be empathized with. And then we can combine the real life stories of real people getting vaccinated or the implications of not getting vaccinated with fact-based answers to the questions people are asking. And you know, for some of them, we have to say, look, you're concerned about the long-term consequences of COVID. That's a very common concern. I'm sorry, of the COVID vaccine. That's a very common concern. So what can I tell you? Well, I can tell you that we can't say with certainty that there will be no long-term consequences of this vaccination. I can say that it hasn't happened with any other vaccine. I can say with other vaccines, we see any adverse events within months. I can say that half a billion people have gotten this vaccine without any uh, serious adverse events. I can say that if you get COVID, you're certain to have billions of copies of the virus going all over your body, possibly affecting you for months, whereas with the vaccine, it will be gone from your body within 24 to 48 hours. So there are ways to try to address it. The other thing that I think helps people to understand is the vaccine is not going to protect you. The vaccine is going to teach your immune system how to protect you. Essentially, it is saving you the trouble of getting COVID by going through that experience with your immune system so that when you do get exposed to COVID, it will recognize the virus and fight it uh, much more effectively. So <clears throat> I'm a mother. I have two very young children. They're three and four and a half years old. Um, here where I am in Florida, uh, schools are not mandating masks. Um, many of us are sort of figuring out how, how do we navigate this? Because now we're not just navigating for ourselves, but for our children who are too young to get vaccinated. Do you have any advice for parents specifically who are trying to figure out how to make the best decisions as the school year approaches? Yeah, it's tough. There are a few things. We know outdoors is, is really vastly safer than indoors. So maximizing time outdoors is a really good thing to do. Uh, have that sunblock on down there in Florida, of course. In terms of schools, it's crucially important that schools open for in-person learning and stay open. And for that to happen, we need layered protection. That means everyone who can be vaccinated should get vaccinated. That means everyone who can wear a mask wears a mask. That means we increase ventilation, open the windows. That also means we get ready for cases. So if there are cases, we respond quickly. They don't spread through the school. Uh, 
the good news is that COVID generally doesn't give severe illness to young children, but that doesn't mean it's completely benign. And it is also the case that children can give it to other people in their families, grandmothers and others. So we need to be careful, but we need to get our kids back to school and staying in school. That's why I think it's so unfortunate to see the kind of um, political partisan uh, work that's making what should be a nonpartisan issue. Get vaccinated, wear a mask. You know, you can say that if you're a Democrat or a Republican. You can say it if you're a conservative or a liberal. Um, there are really two ways to fight this virus, either using science or ignoring science. Using science works a lot better. Oh, I love that. And I couldn't agree more with everything that you've just said, of course. Um, okay, so lots of questions from folks about, do you think we're headed back toward uh, to needing lockdowns, having lockdowns? Um, also questions about, do we think that the U.S. will end up mandating vaccines? I don't know if, if you care to comment on, on either of those questions. I think we are seeing a change in people's attitudes gradually. I think we'll get uh, more openness to mandating vaccination in various places. It's not going to be done by the federal government for most people. It'll be done by states. It'll be done by cities. It'll be done by businesses, which realize that this is an important way of avoiding the legal, ethical, and reputational risk of having an outbreak at your business. I think we'll also see more openness to mask mandates. Uh, there's no way to know who's vaccinated and who's not. If you're operating a supermarket, you've got employees who may uh, themselves get very sick or bring the infection home to a family member. Um, we still aren't doing a nearly as well as we need to do in protecting the most vulnerable, including some Black and Latinx communities that are continuing to have high rates of disease, higher rates of disease, lower rates of vaccination. So I think we'll have more openness to vaccine and mask mandates. I don't see lockdowns happening. I hope that won't be necessary. Remember, we've got more than 80% of the most vulnerable people in society vaccinated. And vaccines, though there are breakthroughs, are stunningly effective at preventing severe illness and death from the virus. So I don't think we're going to see anything like the death toll we saw before. And for that reason, I'm uh, optimistic we won't need to have lockdowns. It is possible that in some communities you will have hospitals getting overwhelmed, and then those communities will have to address how they're going to deal with that situation.